Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm A.F. Tanith, and today I'm covering Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 7. Now, I have always known that Jamie Campbell Bauer was conventionally attractive. I knew that he got cast in Twilight and Cassandra Clare's Harry Potter knockoff because he was an objectively handsome dude. But I never really saw it myself. He was always kind of a pretty boy, which normally I love, but his pretty always seemed kind of overshadowed by the boy, in that he looked... Well, he still looked like a teenager until pretty recently. Now, though, now he's in his 30s, and his hair, and his cheekbones, and his acting, it's, it's just, it's fucking me all up. If a third Geef's brother had been commissioned to sculpt yet another Lucifer, his statue would have looked a lot like Jamie Campbell Bauer. So, before I lose my mind, let's get into this recap. We left off with our gang in a precarious position. Steve is in the Upside Down, beset by a horde of otherworldly bats, and though they're taking chunks from his flesh, he is not down for the count. Nancy and Robin and even Eddie are hot on his heels and ready to help, and it is the best live-action adaptation of a video game kind of fight as one could ever hope to see. It's not perfect, because how could it be? But it's beautifully coordinated, and the physics of it actually works. The enemies really feel as if they have a presence in the scene. Like, they actually have a weight and a mass, and they're physically reacting to the hero's blows in a realistic way. It's perhaps the best take on this kind of fight that I've ever seen, and it oddly makes me want to play Inquisition again. But before our orientationally incompatible foursome can get back through the portal, they find that the opportunity has been stolen from them. Another swarm of bats descends to guard the gate, and there will be no getting past them. They would be insane to even try it. Nancy, though, has a tentative plan. She leads everyone into the forest of the Upside Down, and though it keeps them temporarily alive, it's a terrifying prospect. A normal forest can be very scary at night. An Upside Down forest in the dark? You're gonna need nerves of steel to go in there. And speaking of steel, well, I don't know if it's actually steel, but that poor bastard who survived the gun battle at Joyce's house is still locked inside a heated metal box as the military tries to torture Elle's location out of him. We don't know how long he's been in there, but it seems he's finally reached the end of his rope. He begs his torturers not to kill Elle, and then, I'm sure, he tells them where to find her. I guarantee that is going to happen fairly early in Volume 2. And for reference, I am writing this script before those two episodes drop, and when I finish recording this episode, I will be immediately sitting down to watch episode 8. Cut to the girl in question. Elle is still struggling to harness even the smallest bit of her power, and Owens and Brenner are arguing far too calmly for my taste. I genuinely want to see Brenner die this season, you guys, and I'm going to be furious if he survives. This man deserves the absolute worst. Elle is a better person than me by sheer virtue of the fact that I would have delivered Brenner to Vecna all tied up in a goddamn bow. Owens, I can forgive. He is on very thin ice, but he hasn't crossed the moral event horizon just yet. As for Eleven, she's struggling to cope with the knowledge of what she supposedly did to the other psychic kids, and Brenner is lying right to her face with every single word. He tells her to, quote, stop hiding, which is just the final bit of a long speech that makes me so angry I cannot see straight. But it instills in Elle a determination to try again to explore her memories in the sensory deprivation tank. Back in Hawkins, Lucas and Dustin and Max are being grilled by their parents and the police, but they can't get their stories either straight or reasonable. I really don't know why the fuck Lucas and Dustin didn't just shut their mouths and let Max do the talking because she is clearly the smartest child in this room, easily. Except for maybe Erica, who seems to be the only person capable of realizing that they're a bunch of lying liars. And as everyone devolves into arguing, the new sheriff finally steps up to try to do his job. He takes Max into a side room for a solo interrogation, and then we're back to the Upside Down. 
Our, I repeat, sadly incompatible foursome hide cowering in the local makeout spot, and Nancy does her best to bandage Steve's wounds. It's a definite moment of tension between them, which worries me that one of them is still at risk of dying in the very near future. It's not like the writers are teasing this relationship because they actually intend to give it to us this season. Beyond the interpersonal relationships happening here, though, the gang is trying to puzzle through the exact details of the situation that they're in. Everything here is part of a hive mind as far as they understand it, and they think that this hive mind likely includes Vecna, though I have my doubts. More importantly, though, is that the upside down is virtually identical to the right side up. The only concrete difference between the worlds, save of course the monstrous hive mind infecting the place like so much deadly fungus, is that there are no people here. Objects and locations, though, they remain unchanged. And I need to know everything about the details of that. Why on earth is it the case that the Upside Down shares these details with the real world? My theory at the moment takes into account what we'll see later with Vecna's origin story. I think the place was unformed, rather akin to primordial Earth, until Eleven yeeted Henry Creel into it, and so forged the connection between our worlds necessary for the Mind Flayer to turn its unkind attentions toward the right side up. And then, to answer why everything in the Upside Down is seemingly frozen on the night that Will Byer went missing, my theory is that the Upside Down stayed primordial until that connection was made. The Upside Down reflects Hawkins in the moment of Will's disappearance, because it was Will's disappearance into the Upside Down that made it look like Hawkins in the first place. Or at least that's the tinfoil theory that I'm writing mostly off the top of my head right now. It's what makes the most sense to me at the moment, if nothing else. In any case, Robin recommends going to the local PD to get weapons, but Nancy reminds them that they won't have to go all the way down to the station to get weapons because she keeps two handguns in her bedroom, much to Eddie's obvious disbelief. In Russia, Hopper gets another speech as he prepares to fight the Demogorgon with Enzo and the other prisoners, and I cannot pretend that I care any more about this one than its predecessors. Slightly more interesting is the arrival of Murray, Joyce, and Yuri, and Murray manages to fool everyone into believing that he's actually Yuri even though he speaks Russian with an American accent that even I can hear. Then, in Elle's memories, the poor kid is refusing to admit who beat her up in the Rainbow Room. Like every shitty authority figure ever, Brenner handles the problem in the worst way possible. He makes Elle the center of attention and punishes the bullies such that they will definitely go after her again at the next good opportunity. And next time, they're almost certainly going to do worse. But who can really blame them? Because look at the behavior that's being modeled for these kids. Imagine for a moment that the older children were, like Eleven, born into this program. Imagine that they have been raised their entire lives within these prison walls. Imagine that they have never known a safe adult. Imagine that they have never felt the sun on their skin or played on a playground or gotten a hug that didn't come with some psychological price tag. Imagine that the only adults they've ever known in their entire lives were doctors and orderlies with no qualms about torturing them the moment they got out of line. Imagine being raised for your entire childhood, being treated no better than a dog. Is it any surprise at all that these children are violent and hierarchical and take their frustrations out on one another? That's what the cycle of abuse does. People who are powerless to stop their abusers often turn into abusers themselves once they get power over someone else. It's the behavior that they, that we, learn is normal. It's the behavior that we learn the powerful are entitled to. And it's the behavior that we learn eases the frustration and the pain of not being able to fight against those who remain more powerful than us. And it takes an incredibly strong, empathetic, and introspective person to be able to truly stop the loop. But like I said, these children have been treated not as people, but as mildly useful pets, working animals, guard dogs, perhaps. Their violence is what's being nurtured in them. They are needed for a violent job, but they're not allowed to go so far as to eat one another alive. 
and they are punished worse than animal cruelty laws allow when they step too far out of line. When it becomes clear to Brenner that Two was likely the ringleader of Eleven's attack, Brenner gives the instruction to, quote, collar him, which is exactly what it sounds. The orderlies snap an electroshock collar around the young man's neck and make him beg as he's tortured into telling the truth. And torture, I will remind everyone, is never a way to actually get to the truth. Torture is nothing but a way to get your victim to tell you whatever you want to hear to make the pain stop. I am so sick of seeing torture used in fiction to genuinely get real answers. That is just not the way it works. Meanwhile, in the woods, Eddie and Steve are kinda sorta bonding-ish. And I would bet a whole kidney that this relationship is skyrocketing up the ranks over on AO3. Like, Steve was shipped with Billy until the latter died. I cannot pretend that I like the possibility of Eddie and Steve, but at least it's better than that awful shit. But oh boy, am I sure that the Het Is You fans are losing their mind over Eddie and Steve and Nancy and Robin right now. Never mind the fact that Eddie and Robin both seem to be huge Nancy and Steve shippers. And I guarantee that if Robin hadn't gotten a coming out scene already, the writers would have tried to pair her up with Eddie Boy over here. Anyway, at Nancy's house in the real world, Dustin is trying in vain to get a hold of Steve and the others. Lucas is afraid that maybe they went through the gate, but Dustin insists that they would not possibly have ever been so stupid. Because I guess he's stupid. But then Erica shows up, and she wants to blackmail her brother into letting her in on whatever the hell is going on. It's kind of ridiculous, honestly, after what happened last year and what she pulled a few minutes ago because she was out of the loop, you might as well just tell her what's what. Leaving people in the dark is always a surefire way to get yourself into an even worse mess. And it's thanks to Erica's skepticism over this whole deal that Dustin manages to piece together the next bit of the puzzle anyway. Sure, they've found a third gate, but why is there a new gate in the first place? If it wasn't L and it wasn't the Russians, then who opened up the gate beneath the lake? Dustin comes up with a theory almost immediately, one that ties the Mind Flayer's motivations into Vecna's actions. As L and the Demogorgon in Season 1 showed us, it's the psychic connection between someone in the Upside Down and someone in the Right Side Up that facilitates the opening of a gate, and so perhaps that's what Vecna's doing. Vecna is piercing the veil over and over again by psychically connecting to his victims, killing them, and using their deaths to create new gates. Which means that not only is there a gate at the lake near where Patrick died, but there's also one where Chrissy died, and presumably one near where Fred's corpse was found. But while Erica struggles to get a handle on the batshit lore of this series and the mostly spackled over occasional retcon, no one notices the lights flickering. And thankfully, they herald not Vecna's arrival, but that of the Scooby Gang. Steve and Nancy and Robin and Eddie have made it to Nancy's house, and while Steve tries to figure out why he can hear Dustin's voice through the veil, Nancy and the others rush upstairs to get her guns. Except they're not there. Nothing she's recently gotten is there, and everything she's recently gotten rid of is. And, as her diary soon reveals, that is because in the Upside Down, time is not marching forward. Time has stagnated, if it ever ran. Vecna may be associated with a clock, but the world in which he is trapped is stuck in time on the night that Will was abducted for reasons that even now remain unclear. Downstairs, though, Steve is having a whole other breakdown from Nancy's. He's screaming Dustin's name, but Dustin cannot hear the gang, even though the gang can hear Dustin. And Nancy, thankfully, remembers the events of Season 1. She knows that upside-down and right-side-up communication is possible through the lights. And wouldn't you know it, but there's a sparkly shimmer floating around the ceiling lights. It's a strange, magical manifestation of the real world's electricity, and when they put their hands into the shimmer, it makes the lights on the other side flicker in response to their motions. And so, they send out an SOS. 
which is why Erica is a valuable part of the whole thing. It's she who notices the lights blinking, she who realizes that there's something weird about the way the lights are flickering, and she who draws Dustin's attention to them, so that Dustin can decipher the Morse code and realize to his horror that the Scoobies did go through the Watergate after all. But now we're back to Russia. Murray is rehearsing what he hopes will be a badass moment, but he is a silly little fucker, and he's really leaning into his role here. He tries to get info on Hopper's whereabouts, and he winds up getting better than just information. He nets himself, Yuri, and Joyce front row seats to Hopper's impending execution. The prisoners are all on their knees in the arena, getting ready to face the Demogorgon, and if anyone in the audience didn't already realize that everyone except Enzo and Hopper are red shirts here, then I am sorry, but you are in for a rude awakening. The prisoners get weapons, yes, but they are simply not going to be enough. This Demogorgon is even more vicious than we've ever seen before, thanks to the increased budget of the series, and when he gets out from behind that door, it is going to be a complete and utter bloodbath. But first, we're back to Elle's memories again. The older kids are glaring at her from across the rainbow room, and it's no great mystery as to what they're thinking. Henry draws Elle's attention away from them and invites her into a chess game, and he's got a warning for her. I don't know if he's telling the truth in part or in whole, but I wouldn't remotely be surprised if he is. According to him, the older kids are going to attempt to kill Eleven as soon as Two recovers from his torture, and Papa is not going to try to stop them. As a matter of fact, he's been planning to be rid of Eleven, possibly because he sees her as weak and unworthy and a waste of everyone's time. Personally, I would wager that there is some truth to the part about Two. He probably will try to kill Eleven sooner or later but I don't know if I buy that Brenner actually wanted such a thing. Would he accept the loss if he found out about the attack too late to intervene? Almost certainly. He's not going to kill his best student over this, of course. But would he intervene if he found out about the attack before or while it was happening? That I find more questionable. He might consider it a test for Eleven and refuse to intervene on those grounds alone. But I don't really think that he would outright arrange for one of the psychic kid's murders. And it's not like Henry Creel is an especially believable man. If anyone, after all, is playing all of these children like pawns, it's him. And now we get to his masterstroke of manipulation. He tells Elle that she needs to escape either now or never, and if she wants to get out of here alive, then she's going to have to obey him completely. Now, I feel like there's probably a great deal of symbolism happening in this little chess match between them, but I don't know enough about chess to say. My pet theory, given that I know nothing about the game, is that because we largely see Elle taking Henry's pieces off the board, this is potential foreshadowing for the show at large. Elle and Henry are in a situation in which it looks like Elle is winning the game. She's taken out Gates, Demogorgons, and the Flayed, and even held off the Mind Flayer itself, but Vecna is playing her in the larger plot as surely as he's playing her in this scene. I am suspicious, I admit, that if there were ever a season in which to have a downer ending as a cliffhanger, a season finale in which the good guys appear to not win, it's this season. This is the penultimate season of the entire show, and that means this is the last good opportunity to raise the stakes by giving the villains a big win. Back in the present, Dustin, Lucas, and Erica commandeer Holly's Lightbright, and I have not seen one of those in 20 years, so I was tickled pink. They use it rather like a chalkboard. Nancy writes letters with her fingers and the sparkles upon the air, and the bulbs of the light bright glow in response. They relay that they're stuck in the upside down and that the water gate is guarded, and Dustin tells them about the other potential gates, first and foremost of which is the one in Eddie's trailer, which means the time has come once again to break out the bikes. Back in the real world, though, Max rejoins the gang. Erica and the boys catch her up on what's happened while the cops bemoan how mean and unhelpful she was. 
And by the time the cops go to very creepily interrogate the next kid, all four of them are gone, and Erica is just out here slashing tires while the parents demonstrate the effects of a long-term lack of exercise. I'm still kind of hoping that in the final chunk of the season, maybe they'll get to do something fun, but I suppose we'll see. Back in Elle's memories, we finally see more of the day of the massacre. She goes through with Henry's plan, tricking the orderly into taking her to the infirmary so that she can sneak out while his back is turned. Using Henry's keycard, which Brenner never should have let him have, she gets down into the apparent basement or boiler room, maybe, of the facility and finds the spot where Henry's creepy ass intends her to crawl to freedom. She can go, he says, but he's too big to be able to follow. And one wonders if he was being honest in this moment. One wonders what would have happened if, in an alternate reality, Eleven left without removing his implant. Would he have snitched to Brenner to bring her back? Would he have covered for her absence so that she would actually have a chance to escape? Or did he never intend to let her crawl into that tunnel without removing his implant in the first place? Now, let's pause for just a moment to look at this implant. I don't completely hate its existence within the storyline because it does indeed get the job done, but it is incredibly convenient that this device called Soteria exists. How was this invented? What is the science behind this tech? Is it chemical, like maybe a hormone treatment of some kind? Is it electrical? Is it straight up magical? What the hell is this? And that it's called Soteria? Well, in Greek mythology, Soteria was the goddess or demon of safety and salvation, as well as an epithet of Persephone, whose mandatory descent into the underworld for a third of the year was used to explain the winter. Apparently, the biblical use of the word meant, quote, salvation from the penalty, power, presence, and pleasure of sin. So if we're going the biblical route on this one, then we're casting Elle and Henry and the other children's powers as sin, which could have implications for our endgame. But we'll see. I think it's more likely, though, that the word Soteria was chosen simply because this device was meant to protect the world from Henry. This device was meant to be the world's salvation from what Henry meant to do to it, and that shines a light on what else you have to wonder about this whole thing. What must Henry's experience here have been like for Brenner to go so far as to psychically neuter him, but not outright kill him? As for Elle, I cannot pretend that I blame her for what she does because I would have done the same damn thing, and I don't even have the excuse of being, like, seven years old. I'm damn near 30 at this point, and beyond even addressing the fact that Jamie Campbell Bower's stupid face could probably get me to do some truly idiot shit under the right circumstances, all Henry, anyone, really, would have had to say to me was that he was trapped in the same prison that I was, but that unlike me, he wasn't going to be able to escape because of a fucking tracking device. And I absolutely would have ripped that thing out of him, too. Hell, even with the knowledge of what he goes on to do to everyone else in the project, I'm not gonna lie, I'd still probably consider it. I can't pretend I hold it against him that he killed all the adults in the facility. The only quibble I have with what he did here is that he killed the kids. That's my only problem with it. That and he left Brenner alive. He definitely should have gotten Brenner. As for the present, though, it's time to zip back over to Russia. The battle between the prisoners and the Demogorgon begins, and half of them get wrecked before Hopper even has time to light a fire. Upstairs, Murray and Joyce turn the tables on the Russian in charge. But he's not interested in complying with their demands. He knows that if he obeys them, he's going to die, so he might as well just let them kill him. And when they try that same trick on the guy in charge of opening the doors, the guy pulls the same move. What's the point of giving in to demands on pain of death if you know giving in will also kill you? And it will kill everyone else to boot. Honestly, I'm kind of proud of the guy in charge of the door. I've got a lot of respect for anyone willing to die to do the right thing, and I'm sorry to say it, but refusing to unleash a demogorgon onto your co-workers 
is objectively the right thing. Granted, the writer thing would be to not fucking work there in the first place, but I'm honestly not sure how much choice he has in Soviet fucking Russia. But at last, the doors in the arena open and it's almost too late. The Demogorgon is so strong that it manages to pry the crack open until Hopper spears him in the weird flower mouth. And I've gotta admit, I'm not entirely clear why he didn't just try to pitch a Molotov cocktail into the thing's mouth from the beginning. I suppose it's just that he doesn't know he's in a TV show, and even a million-to-one shot would have almost certainly worked. As for Hopper and Joyce's happy reunion, I'm here to be a buzzkill. You all can be as happy about this as you like, but I frankly hate these two together, and I don't care that it's clearly endgame. I wish that man had stayed dead. Back in the Upside Down, though, the Scoobies make it to Eddie's trailer. The spot where Chrissy died against the ceiling is a pulsating gate, and it's very gross, even before the younger kids shove a stick through it from the other side and burst it open like an infected cyst. The effect here, though, the way both sides perceive each other as being the wrong side up, that is fun. It makes for a weird moment when they try to get through, of course, made only weirder by what happens to Nancy, but it's very fun nonetheless. But now we're back to Elle's flashbacks. You can't hurt me more than they already have, Henry promises, and... I would love to test that, Jamie, dear. You will enjoy it. I promise. Okay, fine. I will stop flirting with a guy playing a serial killer. Eleven, of course, gets the implant out, though she does not yet realize that it does more than simply track the orderly. It suppresses his powers because he is, of course, subject number one. And Henry Creel. And Vecna. Obviously. And that moment when they get cornered in the hall and Henry finally reveals his powers... Yes, thank you, that is what I wanted, however did you know? If you would have told me ten years ago that I would be this attracted to Jamie Campbell Bower, I would have laughed in your literal face. But I do have to wonder throughout all of this, what was the actual plan? I suppose maybe I should wait to get into it until after Henry and Elle have their little chat later, but for now, like, what the hell was he planning on doing with this little girl? Like, what was she to him? He seemed pretty willing to get rid of her as soon as she rejected him, but was his whole deal about them joining forces, like, legit? Like, that is a seven-year-old little girl, mate. I need you to step away. Unless she turns out to be, like, your daughter or something, and oh boy, would that be a whole new level of evil on Brenner's part? Well, if she's not related to you, I need you to go ahead and leave this little girl alone. Because this is just unambiguously grooming. He's grooming her. And even if you don't intend to do anything untoward with her once she's past puberty, this is all still pretty fucking evil. Like, take the kid and drop her off at a fire department or something. Or at least that's what he should have done if he weren't completely nuts. At the trailers, the upside-down one and the right-side-up one, the two groups of teens are rigging up a system so that the older batch of kids can climb through the gate. Dustin throws a sheet rope up to the ceiling, and it falls from the ceiling on the other side. From there, they don't even have to hold it in place. It stays suspended on both ends, and I'm not gonna lie, this wouldn't save my ass. I have strength in my legs, sure, but I do not have the upper body strength necessary to climb that rope. I would have just had to sit there and let Vecna take me, I guess, because there is no way that my ass would be getting up that rope without having to stand on someone's shoulders or some shit. And, speaking of noodle arms and Vecna murders, Nancy doesn't make it through the gate any more than I would've. In her mind's eye, she imagines herself climbing through, and then falling through the void of space into the pool where Barb was killed. 
Nancy has never seen this version of the pool before, no, nor has she seen the sorry state of Barb's neglected corpse. But that does not matter. Vecna makes her hallucinate it with disturbing accuracy nonetheless, and his taunts go right for the heart. Just as Max blamed herself for Billy's death, Nancy blames herself for Barb's. And that is how we're going to avert a Nancy and Steve reunion, isn't it? Nancy isn't going to be able to look Steve in the eyes after this, assuming she lives. This violent reminder of why Barb died, that Nancy was too busy losing her virginity with Steve to even wonder if her friend was safe, it's going to put a hell of a damper on the tension that's been growing between them once again. But back to the flashbacks once more. Elle was told to stay put, but she doesn't obey. She wanders into the rest of the facility and follows the blood and the screams and the blinking lights to Brenner's unconscious body, and then to the rainbow room where Henry has killed everyone but two, who he promptly finishes off. And I'm not gonna lie, I think it's very funny that being evil now somehow changed his fucking hairstyle. Where and when did he find the products to restyle in the midst of a massacre? Boy can't even wipe the blood off those pretty cheekbones, but he can do his fucking hair? Okay. Okay, sure. Now, I really appreciate the flash to the younger actress playing Eleven. Millie Bobby Brown is 18. She's still incredibly young, yes, but she's not visibly a little girl anymore. She's a young woman, a very young woman, and she's hardly on equal footing with 33-year-old Jamie Campbell Bower or his probably similarly aged character. But there is a certain extreme sense of unease that is not properly conveyed to the viewer until you actually see an actual seven-year-old standing beside Jamie Campbell Bower. Giving Millie something to do, giving Millie the screen time she gets as the main character, I feel that it takes something away from this scene. Honestly, I kind of wish Millie hadn't been in these flashback scenes at all. I wish the flashbacks had been given over fully to the younger actress with Millie's silly CGI face on, because having Millie here really detracts, I think, from just how terrifying this situation actually is. Eleven, as played by 18-year-old Millie, is palpably vulnerable, and the scene is disturbing, yes, but it simply cannot compare to the extreme disgust of seeing Henry Creel's fully grown ass manipulating a tiny, tiny, itsy-bitsy baby girl. Seeing that man speaking that way to someone that young is one of the most frightening, upsetting, and downright disturbing things I have ever seen. And I wish they had leaned into that. And, as Nancy wanders Vecna's world, Vecna relays his story to her, and parts of it to Elle. I was right, and I'm going to go ahead and gloat for a moment. As was obvious, Henry Creel's sociopathic little ass was killing bunnies, and then the rest of his family, and that, of course, is the reason we didn't see any reaction shots from him. As was obvious, Henry Creel's death was faked by Brenner, and he became the first subject of Brenner's abusive program. As was obvious, he ended up being forced into the role of orderly, and I'm still desperate to know how exactly that happened. And then, as was obvious, he ultimately turned into Vecna. And that last bit? That was actually Elle's fault. See, Henry Creel is insane, and I don't say that lightly. Henry Creel is insane, and I am comfortable making that judgment because of how much I agree with a lot of what he had to say. He's talking about having a perception as a child that something was wrong with him, that he was broken, that he lacked the joy and the brightness and the color of those around him, that he was empty inside. And as a kid who grew up experiencing suicidal ideation as young as only 10, I get it. When you're that young and the world already feels dead, well, being a teenager gets kind of rough. Being a teenager has a certain madness to it inherently. 
Adolescence is a liminal space. Adolescence is a horrific mess of raging hormones, youthful imagination, and a growing awareness of the real circumstances of the world. Adolescence is your body and your mind changing faster and more drastically than you know how to deal with. And teenagers, as Angela has been sure to remind us, are often egregiously cruel. An isolated adolescence risks disaster. An abused teenager, a depressed teenager, likely many different kinds of neurodivergent teenagers, will find ways to dissociate from their pain. And given that teenagers are often young enough that they still don't fully comprehend where reality ends and fantasy begins, as evidenced by so-called reality-shifting TikTok trends, conspiracies about celebrities being in fake relationships and having fake kids, and even what happened to Peyton Lutner, well, it can be easy for an adolescent that no one's taking emotional care of to fall into fantasy and delusion and self-aggrandizing despair. I remember what it was like to be a 13-year-old desperate for the world to be anything except what it was. And so I have an extreme amount of sympathy for a lot of Henry's backstory, especially when considering the context that he was abducted as a young teen and imprisoned by mad scientists until he was, like, 30 or something. But. I said it before, and I will say it again. Henry Creel is completely insane. He has stagnated as a little boy. His morality is clearly as black and white, or perhaps blue and orange, as that of a child who cannot yet comprehend that other people are other people, with their own interiority entirely separate from the child's own. Henry Creel self-aggrandized. He was lonely and felt misunderstood, and he leaned into that perception of himself, self-soothing by deciding he was like the spiders he so adored. He, like they, were dangerous and beautiful and unjustly unloved. And the spiders became a symbol through which to further internalize that narrative. Instead of merely wallowing and feeling like an outcast, instead of desperately trying to find someone to love him, he allowed a radical sense of reactive superiority to accommodate for the feeling of being perceived as inferior. And again, that is very mentally ill teen. I recognize that shit because I experienced it myself. But I, unlike this fictional character, was capable of seeing that other people were not me. Solipsism is one of the nine satanic sins for a reason. The notion that others are not whole the way you are, that they are not people in the same sense that you are a person, it is childish and it's viciously cruel because it fundamentally prevents the growth of a genuine sense of empathy. And that is the sticking point that makes Henry Creel utterly insane. Henry Creel at least presents himself as having been an empty little boy, grew up to be a batshit crazy man. When he says that, quote, everyone is just waiting for it all to be over, what he means is that he is just waiting for it all to be over. What he means is that he was a little boy who wished that he was dead, and that he was too solipsistic to ever realize that no, that was not everyone else's experience of the world. And again, I get that too. It still kind of baffles me sometimes that there are people out there, millions, if not billions of people, who are just fucking happy. Who have only ever woken up happy to be alive. Who cannot even fathom the experience of going to sleep and hoping that the morning will never come. The part that I don't get, of course, is the logical jump from, my life is not worth living, to, hmm, I guess I'll kill everyone else. I fully understand the jump from, my life is not worth living, to, I guess I'll kill myself. I've lived almost all of my life experiencing some degree of that ideation. But to go from potentially taking your own life to actually taking someone else's, that is what takes Henry Creel from a sympathetic figure to an absolute madman of a villain. 
though I honestly might not have seen it that way if I was still, like, 13. L, it seems, is a better person than me in that department. Somehow, this child raised like a lab rat is simply a healthier child than I was. L is like six to maybe eight years old, and she doesn't even have to consider his offer. She turns down Henry's nonsense without so much as a second thought, and I know for a fact that I, as a child, I potentially even as old as my late teens or early twenties, would probably have said yes. I don't find much shame in admitting that at the height of my own mental illness, I was absolutely primed to let someone with madness like Henry's amplify my own. And so I've got to admit that my initial reaction upon seeing Elle turn him down, I didn't buy that shit for a minute. Honestly, I still kind of don't. But let's move on. I do want to point out that I think there is an inconsistency in Henry's story. Henry fundamentally is either lying or the writers made an egregious mistake. Henry says that the reason he fell unconscious while trying to kill his father was because he overestimated and overtaxed himself. Trying to kill his father, right on the heels of both his mother's and his sister's deaths, put him in the coma that delivered him into Brenner's arms. But here's the thing. Henry's dialogue says that he failed to kill his father because he was overexerted. However, here's the thing. We get three different explanations for what happened here. And perhaps it's just a matter of, you know, every different character stating their perception of what actually happened. But it does get rather messy. Henry implies that he failed to kill his father because he was overexerted. Victor claims that he survived because the music saved him. Both of those things can technically be true at the same time, yes, but the third can't. One of these things, at the very least, has to be a lie. Henry and Victor both present the situation as if Victor's life was narrowly saved by complete accident. But Henry also says that Victor's arrest was just as he planned, and like, pick a lane, honey. Either you intended to frame your father for your mother's and sister's deaths, or you didn't. Either you intended your father to die, or you intended him to live and to be blamed. It literally cannot be both. So maybe that's a hint to something. Perhaps even a hint that music may not be the enormous help that we believe. Or perhaps it's just Henry lying, or perhaps it's a weird little quirk of the writing that we need to overlook as we move on. Because we definitely do need to move on, as what Henry says next is also very interesting. He awoke, he says, to find himself in the care of, quote, the one doctor he hoped to avoid. That is, he awoke to find himself subject to the absolute authority of Martin Brenner. And I've got to ask, when he says, quote, the one doctor I hope to avoid, does he mean Brenner's type? Or does he literally mean Brenner himself? As in, does he mean to say that he knew about Brenner before awaking from his coma? As in, maybe his powers are related to MKUltra after all? And um, let me also vaguely gesture once again toward the terrifying possibility that when Henry says Brenner tried to recreate him via the birth of a bunch of babies, it's technically possible that he means all the kids he just killed could be his own, which would be a hell of a lot of rape in his backstory, that's for sure, and I don't want that, thank you. But even more bizarre than the rest of what Henry says, of course, is the way he perceives his victims as still with him. In here, he says, pointing toward his temple and like, I'm gonna need some clarification on that one, babe. 
Not that there's time. Elle's rejection is an aggressive one. She uses her powers on one, and it's obvious he didn't expect her to turn out to be a match for him. Which makes sense, considering it's pretty fucking inexplicable. She couldn't do anything until very recently. Why would he think her capable of this? And when I say this, I'm not even entirely sure what I mean. I'm not entirely sure what the hell Elle actually did. Dustin claims that Elle did not create the Upside Down, but like, are we sure? Because that place is like primordial earth when she throws Jamie's pretty ass in there to get a little bit less pretty, and how in the world did she do this? Or know to do this? I get that we're doing a whole thing of love is more powerful than hatred or whatever, and that her memory of her mother telling her she loved her is what allowed Elle to overpower Henry in the first place, but that is not actually my issue. The power levels are one thing. It's Elle's connection to the Upside Down that is an eternal mystery to me. How the fuck did this seven-year-old blast Henry fucking Creel into a whole other goddamn universe that she apparently didn't even know existed? Answers. I beg of you, give me the answers. Hopefully I will get them in the next two episodes of the series. But for now, that is me done. I'm going to go right now and start episode 8, so I will be back next week with the next one, and in the meantime, Patreon, ratings, reviews, all of that jazz. I hope you will join me again when I am back with my episode 8 coverage, and as always, thank you so much for listening. And so everyone does a dissolves. Everyone dissolves. Perfect. Everyone dissolved. And that was the end of the show. No more show. Everyone dissolved.